Hey everyone, welcome back to Real Life with Pamela Lau. I'm so glad to be with you. We have a special episode planned for you. We're continuing in our series where I read parts of my parable that I wrote, and then I interview a very special guest today. And my guest today who is with us is Connor Knapp. And Connor is going to share his testimony and story for the first time. And I just ask that you would keep the eyes of your heart wide open as you uh, envision sitting in the room with us as we talk about um, a really vulnerable struggle that he shares and how Connor experienced the light of Christ on him in his darkest moment. And the fact that he talks about where his truest identity lies is truly miraculous to me. So I'm really looking forward to you sharing this podcast with those in your life who need to hear this. And also, I just want to bring your attention to how uh, the main character in the book that, uh, that I'm reading aloud to you, how in the midst of his darkest day, that the light of Christ shone upon him, and he was able to hear the voice of God speak to him. And that is my prayer for every one of you listening and the people in your life who this, uh, who this influences, that where whatever dark time someone is facing, that in that moment that they can pause and hear the voice of Christ calling out to them, speaking to them. And that's my prayer for you as well. So please, as always, share this podcast with those of you who know need it. And I welcome you back to Real Life with Pamela Lau. Chapter 9. Later that night, when David was standing in his closet getting ready for the next day's early work meeting, he felt the familiar lashings of self-hatred rise up on the inside. He recalled the dreadful dream he had the night before of being trapped in a remote hideout with a few guards. In his dream, a bad guy was out to find him and destroy him, yet he didn't know why. When he woke up, his day started with the thought, Does it matter if I try hard today? In his mind, he saw himself as lost, not able to find his way back, but back to where? Back to what? It's like he lost not only his way, but things like confidence and hope, which he felt years before. Breathing in slowly, he put both his hands against the shelves and lowered his head. I can't stay in this place much longer. I need something to make me feel good again, David said aloud to no one as he fantasized about his first job promotion and the adrenaline rush he experienced for weeks. Somehow his brain fed on getting the next big thing, but now, but now, and but how? Just the way he looked at himself, his life caused him to wince. He had a strong desire to ask someone for directions. Rubbing his head, his heart wondered, how did I get here? As silent as snow, he heard in his spirit, you are only looking at the surface of things. David looked up. What was that, he wondered. And then he recalled he had a choice to make. Without a sound, David quieted all the noises in his head and said, I am here. Are you? Chapter 10 So what did you hear after that? Diane asked David directly, yet with a gentle push. I can't say I heard 
anything, but something inside shifted for me. It was like a stream of peace made its way deep down. But it was like, quick, like a flash. Am I making any sense? Diane was pleased that David texted her yesterday to meet again. It had been a week since their last conversation, and she wasn't convinced he was ready or maybe willing to take a look at what was going on inside. But now, hearing this, she was hopeful. So let's talk about what you did here, something about you only looking at the surface of things. What was going on through your mind at the time, right before? I don't know for sure, but I think I was calculating my regrets. You know, I just haven't won anything. I know what it was. I was accusing myself of not finding true success in all I've worked so hard for. At one point, I craved the drug of something intense to happen in my life. I'm not sure I can explain it, but I wanted to feel accomplishment again. As the words were spewing from David, he felt anger surge. Anger at whom, he wondered. David looked out the window and then said, My buddy Ben said I judge myself. What do the accusing voices say to you? Diane asked. I hear how another guy I work with is outshining me, or I overhear someone talking about how controlling my wife is, and I start to agree, wondering how I can fix her. Sometimes I just hear sadness, more like a song. And yet, the voice of love revealed to you how you are only looking at the surface of things. What did I do to deserve to hear from God? I thought God only spoke to people who are great and desire him most. I don't even know how to answer. How can I be sure that was God's voice? David, you may be missing something here. You aren't the creator of your faith. And second, it's your inner life where faith starts, not with outward successes. I've spent the past five years agonizing over choices to bring about more control in my life. The way you're talking to me is foreign, and honestly, I suddenly feel frightened, like you're asking me to resign to a system, a religious regimen, or give up something that's worked for me before this crisis ruined my life. I promise you, David, I'm not suggesting a rules-based religion by any means. The fact that you heard the voice of love and turned to God defies the rules. Inside, you acknowledged relationship with the living God. Rather than a legalistic expectation from you or anyone else, the second choice, to give God permission to work in your inner world, is all about freedom. The reason I bring this up is not to condemn you in any way. But one thing I know for sure is that certain thoughts and behaviors like self-hatred and control don't come from God. Nor does he want that in relationship with you. It's like I'm being tested on where this is all coming from. How am I supposed to know? David, exactly what you are doing is how faith is worked out internally. Trust me when I say you no longer have to depend on anger, disappointment, or shame when thinking of yourself or others. David looked up. But I never told you I relied on those things. David was suddenly suspicious and feeling exposed. Remember when we first met David and I said you were being invited into an identity journey? This is something altogether different than anything you've experienced in the past. Diane knew she had David's attention. Usually when we say yes to climbing this mountain with God, everything we knew before gets unwrapped and we are given a chance to start over. Let me ask you a question. 
Why is it you don't talk about your wife with me or your marriage? David sat quietly for a moment, listening to Diane's voice as his defensiveness died down. One thing he liked about her was the way she spoke calm and slow. She had an authority about her he could trust. Carefully, David asked, What do you think God wants from me? My relationship with Amy has nothing to do with this. Diane decided to not push as she could see he wasn't open to seeing the connection. Honestly, David, what he longs to ask all of his children. The question is, God asks, do you really want to know me? Chapter 11, Voice of Destruction. Let me prove David's worthlessness to you and to him. I just need your permission to shake him to the core and lead him to a false identity. He will never turn toward you again. I see nothing in him that is worthy. Voice of Love. Within my parameters, you may shake David, but you cannot touch his body or his soul. My handcrafted souls belong to me. He may believe he has fallen away for a time, catapulting him to make destructive decisions because he's gazing in the wrong direction. His attitude is being influenced by your deceptive, false teachers. Because David's made in my image, he won't find freedom in the lesser gods you call identity. What's in store for David, however, is undeniable goodness, and I will flood him with so much good he cannot deny me as his first love. Voice of Destruction You are ridiculously unfair and particular with the way you rule the world. Look, David already feels unstable about who he is. All I need to do is shake him up so he feels a violent storm has come against his journey of spirituality. Once he accepts that he's got this without you, the real David will emerge for good. Just one breath from me and his whole identity will be found in one of my choicest lesser gods, as you say. Voice of Love I have already prayed for him to see himself from my view, and once I have prayed for him, my image is implanted in David's soul, a place you cannot and will not ever have access to, and that is the identity journey David is now on. Voice of Destruction how is that authentic if you intervene? What kind of human beings did you create for yourself? My hatred for you is intense, propelling me to fight against you as I continue deceiving many into thinking religion is inauthentic and fake. David is a smart, thoughtful, up-and-coming professional young man who will insist on being his most authentic self. He will believe he's doing okay without you. Voice of love. Never will I take my eyes off him. My love doesn't stop pursuing. I have prayed for him that his faith will not fail, and my words teem with life and vigor and truth. My prayers are always answered my way. Let me say this slowly and with a firmness. I fully equip, support, motivate, and empower my children. All right. Hi, Connor. Hi, how are you? <laughs> so good to see you. Um, Connor, I have the most incredible memory of you. 
<laughs> when you were a little boy. I know. <laughs> I know. That's what uh, that's what the beauty of, of being your aunt gets gives to me. But we have family video, you know, videos that your uncle took for you know the last twenty four years of your life, and one day that your sister and your cousins were putting on a show and you were in charge. <laughs> I'm not sure I like where this is going. <laughs> well, well, what was happening is the girls were all trying to take over and get in charge. And you just said, everyone step back. <laughs> <laughs> and then you just kind of let everyone know what was going to happen. And you just said the same thing over and over until everyone fell at the line. And it's just adorable. It's just yeah. adorable. I'm, I'm a nine, but I definitely have a little bit of that eight wing in me. So. <laughs> oh, I didn't know you were a nine. Yeah, I am. So. Huh. I'm an eight, and I have grown into more of my nine wing. Used to be much mm. more seven. So interesting. We have some things in common. All right. Well, I know that uh, we want to jump in and get to know you a little bit. So the first question I just have for you, of course, that that we all might just tell me what you're doing right now, what your job is, where you're living, um, what kind of degree you're working on. Yeah, definitely. So uh, right now I live in Wheaton, Illinois. I'm going to uh, a Wheaton College. Um, I'm in their uh, graduate school, uh, pursuing my master's in higher education and student development. Um, I also work uh, part-time as a graduate resident advisor um, so I live, I'm a, it's a live-in position in a residence hall. Um, so I oversee um, a whole bunch of, of our residents here on um, campus. And I uh, work with another person in my position, and then we work under a full-time resident director. So it's almost like a, like a higher education internship, I guess you could call it. So and I really enjoy that. So I've really gotten to, to know a lot of students with that. So. And where'd you do your undergraduate? Yeah, so I did my undergraduate. I got my uh, degree in psychology from Indiana Wesleyan uh, University. I almost called it Institute. And I was like, that's not right. <laughs> um, so uh, I graduated from there in 2019. Uh, wow, you've done a lot in a few short years here. Yeah. And right now you are, is it winter? Is it, what's the weather like right now? You know, we just came out of, I think, a very, like, hot fall. Like, we had probably, like, two weeks where it was in the 70s here in, like, end of October and November. And now it's around, like, the 50s. And normally in the Midwest, in the Great Lakes region, it, it gets, like, incredibly cloudy for weeks on end in the winter. Oh, but okay. it's, it's yeah. nice and sunny, so. All right. So it sounds like you're on the trajectory to kind of head into student life. But if you could have your dream job, what would it be? <laughs> Oh man, I just, honestly, I've thought about that. I was like, oh, like, what would your dream job be? And I think, like, it would be really fun to be, like, a realtor. I, I like, love going and, like, looking at houses. Um, I just don't have any of those skills. So I think if I, like, had the skills and, like, I knew what I was doing, I'd love to be, like, a real estate agent. Um, I also watched a documentary one time where apparently people work for some companies, like, Purdue, and they, like, our quality assurance testers for chicken nuggets. And I'm like, mm, that would be yummy. Too. That would be good too. So I'm not, <laughs> there's, there's a whole bunch of weird jobs in life that like. That's hilarious. I, I think you'd be a great realtor. Yeah. Uh, the chicken nugget one would be 
Oh gosh. Anyway. All right. So tell us, give us a little background of your growing up years, um, where you attended school. And then I always have this, tell us a little bit about your faith journey from that, from those growing up years. So. Yeah, sure. So, um, I have grown up in kind of a, uh, evangelical, uh, Bible or church going home. Um, both of my parents are Christians. Uh, all of my grandparents were Christians, come from a pretty strong lineage of that uh, faith tradition. Um, I have attended like private Christian education for all but a few years of my K-12 experience. Um, and then I obviously have been in Christian higher education uh, my entire time out of K-12 as well. So I very, very versed in that. Um, I've lived in uh, the Midwest for, I would say, the majority of my life. Um, and, you know, it's, I, I really love it. People think of it as like flyover country, but it's, it's a really unique area and place. Um, in terms of where did my faith journey start, I think that can be sometimes a little bit of a tricky question for me. Okay. Um, just because uh, when you are just so inundated in the kind of like Christian narrative from like a very young age, you know, you hear a lot of people sometimes who their faith journey starts out like, oh, I accepted Jesus into my heart at five. And like, that's very common for people in my position. Um, and I would say like, yeah, that starts too. I think I like earnestly started following Jesus uh, let's see how old would I be when I was a sophomore in college. I think I was like 21 or I think, yeah, I think I was about 21. So maybe 20 or 21, something like that. So it's only maybe been, I would say about coming up on three or four years that I have, I would say been like a true like disciple of Christ. So I, I do view like my life kind of in this binary of like, I was very churched, um, but I had kind of a faith experience that caused me to reevaluate my life and kind of pivot a little bit in my faith towards kind of shedding a lot of like Christian assumptions and instead kind of pursuing more of a relationship with Jesus. Okay, uh, before we go, before we head into there, can you just touch on a little bit on what was the, what was the pro and con, if that's the, I know that sounds very black and white, but I don't know how else to, to put this into terms of being in a Christian education for as long as you have. Yeah, certainly. So I think that Christian education is a little bit of a double-edged sword. I think it has a lot of benefits, um, but I think that those benefits kind of rest on uh, whether or not it's being done well. And I think when it's not done well, I think it actually can be really detrimental. To... Okay, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, definitely. So um, I think Christian education is really good at teaching fundamentals. I think when you are teaching children at a young age about Jesus and about the Bible and about mm -hmm. um, scripture, I think that can be a very positive thing. I think the flip side is that if you're not being very careful to teach the gospel, you can end up kind of indoctrinating a lot of like 
like politicalness into young children um, or saying like there's only like one certain kind of like side of Christianity that's okay. Um, it, it's, it's a very fine line between we're teaching our children about the gospel and we're teaching them that only conservatives can be Christians, you know, mm -hmm. or like mm -hmm. only liberals can be Christians. Right. Or that we, we add to the gospel. <laughs> yeah, and we tend to add to it. And that can be very dangerous because yeah. little children can't make that distinguishment. Mm -hmm. And so there's, a, I think, just a big responsibility on educators that they need to be teaching the gospel. And then if they're adding opinion, they need to be like stating, hey, this is an opinion. That's or good. kind of a perspective, but it's not like gospel itself. Mm -hmm. um, I also think that uh, Christian higher ed can sometimes be used by parents as a substitute for discipling their children. Mm. And I think that is always going to be a bad thing because it will never kind of live up to like what it should be. Um, and I think I, I you, saw Are you thinking, are you saying that as if you're a committed Christian parent, that that's your job to disciple your children? I do. I think one of the highest callings of being a parent is to disciple your children. Um, and I think that a lot of people, um, a lot of parents, unfortunately, kind of pass that responsibility off to Christian education um, for a variety of reasons. Um, but I, like that Christian school that you send your kids to, is never going to be a good enough substitute for what you can offer them. So much of the gospel and so much of following Jesus is relational, not um, pedagogical. So like you can't like teach, you know, like the relationship with Jesus, you have to experience it. So I do think that there can be a little bit of like blindness that you kind of put on to children thinking, oh, like I know what it means to be a Christian because they've been taught a lot of stuff about Christianity. Mm -hmm. but not about holy living or loving God or loving neighbor. Mm -hmm. um, and usually those things aren't taught in Christian education. You're mm -hmm. taught like a lot of scriptural stuff, but there's a, I think, difference between being educated about the Bible and being discipled, which I think adds like a relational component that I find is lacking more often than not in Christian education. So I do think that like, just because I've been in it so long, I tend to be a little bit more critical towards Christianity. Sure, absolutely. Um, we all are that way. Right. But I do think it definitely has its benefits. I just think that so often than not, it's like used as like this haven from the world. And we try to uh -huh. send our kids there to like protect them. And oftentimes that can backfire in ways we don't anticipate. Okay. Which I, even yesterday in a conversation I was having with some friends, we were talking about our decision to send our, our, all of our children to Christian school. And, and I asked them, I said, do you have any regret with that? And we talked about that there's so much good, but I even said, sometimes I think I did a disservice for one of my daughters in it. You mm -hmm. know, it's just the reality of every right. student is different, but, but I'm going to put you on the spot for just a second. So uh, how would you define the gospel? Hmm. I think that the gospel is, uh, it's both incredibly complex and simple. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, it's hard because I think so many times you have to kind of evaluate, okay, wait, what am I trying to like, you know, what, when am I making that error of putting uh, preference or like maybe like worldly beliefs into the gospel that shouldn't be there. 
I truly do think the gospel is primarily about Jesus. Um, I think even Orthodox Christians can make the gospel more about us mm-hmm. than I think it actually is. Mm-hmm. Um, because the whole of scripture is a story about Christ. The Old Testament is a foreshadowing of Christ. The New Testament is the story and work of Christ and the church. Um, so I, I think that the gospel is kind of a, first, I think it's a meta narrative. I think it's kind of the summation of Christ's work coming and um, through his death and especially his resurrection, he has kind of freed um, those who come to him and believe in him and trust him. And then he also kind of helps us experience new life. Um, so I do think, I, I kind of think of the gospel as the most uh, like inclusive kind of exclusive uh, kind of form of religion because it truly like anyone is allowed to become a Christian um, but it's through kind of the bottleneck of Jesus and that's the important part Um, so I do believe that the gospel kind of states that like there is a fundamental aspect where humanity is fallen Um, we're not actually good we're actually fundamentally evil Mm. and regardless of our evil Uh, Christ decided to love us and die for us and it's when we kind of trust him that his act on the cross then applies to us and saves us Um, and then through that we uh, especially through his resurrection we experience new life so I don't I don't think that the gospel is like um, like an example or anything. I think mm-hmm. it truly does have real life implications for our spiritual life. Um, right, I like it, think, that Jesus is not just an example. He actually was our substitute. Yeah, and yeah. like it, it, it has those aspects in it. Like it, it does act as like a moral guide. But I think so much of, you know, the gospel is, you know, I was reading First John today and it says that, you know, we can tell who those who are God's children because they follow his commandments and what are his commandments? Love God and love your neighbor. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I do think that like the, the story and the person of Jesus is very central to mm. um, the gospel. That's awesome. One time Connor, just because I teach uh, college students, communications one of their assignments is to talk about why their faith matters and I have them define the gospel so I went on Google and I said how do Christians define the gospel and you know what I was floored by what I read mostly that a lot of people who are out there teaching the gospel don't really define it Um, Mm. or it's defined in such heady theological terms that it, it does us no earthly good. So just really interesting, but, but I wanna move on in our conversation quickly. Right. I want to, um, but good job defining the gospel, by the way. I, I, I thought that was really good, especially since I put you on the spot. <laughs> Thank you. But in our earlier conversations before uh, today, you and I have been um, talking about some serious struggles that you have had to wrestle with. And I wondered if um, first, I wonder if you could, this is where I think the second part of your faith journey goes, but if you could uh, just give us a little bit of background about that. Yeah, so I think I had previously stated uh, just a couple minutes ago that I kind of see my faith journey in this binary um, where I truly started to follow Jesus um, 
my sophomore year of college. And so a big part of my faith journey and kind of just my perspective of faith is just the supremacy and kingship of Jesus Mm -hmm. and how like there is a large part of surrender of kind of letting Jesus transform us. And a lot of times, um, like when we do that, we have, you know, there's the saying like, Jesus allow like doesn't require you to change before you come to him, but he doesn't leave you as you came. Mm. Um, so there is this aspect of like he he invites you into his presence, and then once you're there and you trust him, he changes you. Mm. Um, and I think that is very central to my story. Um, uh, and I'll just kind of like <laughs> you can talk forever about that, but I'll just briefly kind of touch <laughs> yeah. on. Um, a part of my faith journey is that, uh, you know, growing up, I have experienced same-sex desires for, I mean, oh gosh, probably since I was like in first grade, like very, very young. Um, and I was just very confused about that. My conservative Christian subculture I lived in didn't have answers for that. Um, and I think looking back, I'm not sure like it would have, I think just the time it was in America, in that subculture, I'm not sure it was equipped yet to help people like me, to bring people like me to Jesus. Um, and so just, that was just a very tough thing growing up, like wondering like, what do I do with this? And I, I think that there, when you have something like that, you have a couple options, you know, you can kind of ignore it and repress it. You can uh, embrace it and kind of pull it into yourself. Um, and for the longest time, I'm like, these are the only two options. Um, and really there's a better and third option and that's that you give it to Jesus. Um, and that was kind of the option that I think I took that changed the trajectory of my life. I think there is, you know, a lot of talk about how you have to be a certain type of person or how, um, you know, Christians don't experience certain things or they don't, you know, struggle with certain things. And I think that's a very naive and tone deaf belief that I think is in the church. Um, There are many Christians, not all, but there are more Christians. And I think people realize that are faithful, that are like me, that hold to a traditional sexual biblical ethic, um, but recognize that coming to Jesus is not like I mean, it is a miraculous event, but it's not like this, like everything, every bad thing in your life is fixed. There is an aspect of, I still am living in a fallen body with a sinful nature that has been defeated, but kind of exerts its presence over my my life a little bit. Um, And so that I would say is like a a big part of my faith journey is learning how to submit all of myself, even the parts I may not want to submit to Jesus. and like as I submit my whole being to him, he continually shows me um, his power in the way that he is able to redeem all aspects of my life and the ways in which he is able to heal certain parts of my life. I still have those desires. Um, It's not in the same way or power that it used to. like people think like, oh, like, you know, Christians with same sex desires, just, like, they just have it all the time. And I would say that's like not true. I would say it's like, I, 
I don't know, maybe this is like a metaphor. I, I feel like it's akin to like being hungry. Like they're like, if you like, you know, like That's think of like your fate, if you like see your favorite food, it can like trigger like a feeling of hunger, even though you weren't hungry before. And it's in that moment where it's like, all right, Jesus, I, I've submitted all of myself to you. I'm asking you for your power. And so I do think that there is um, a big part of my faith journey of like, just, just submitting my whole personhood to Jesus. And parts of that is painful and parts of that is easy, but it's always worth it because Jesus is the greater prize. Mm. You know, he says like, take my burden upon you for it's easy. Um, and we think of like so much of Christian living as like painful and just like gloomy and like, oh, I've, you know, I've given up all these things. And, you know, there is a truth aspect to that, but like Jesus gives him, gives us himself and a part of like faith after accepting Jesus as, you know, the King of your life is learning to appreciate and love him more and more. So the prize of Jesus becomes more beautiful the more time you spend with him. Um, and I think that that is how I would really center, you know, my faith story. You know, you can spend a lot of time talking about like who you were before Jesus. I really like to uh, accentuate my life like post, I, that, that sounds so bad. No, I, think but, I, like, I actually, Connor, I, I, I'm, I'm like, I'm so pleased, I guess, or delighted in the way that you articulate these things but i do think it would be helpful for just a second just for a minute right if you could put some language to what it felt like before the submission hmm. what were the feelings like because i think that that is speaks right um i think there was a lot of fear i felt very alone um i, I said that the culture i was in was not uh, I think conducive towards helping me or discipleship. Um, and I think that's something I look back on with sadness. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that uh, that changes, of course. But um, I think there was this scary option where I didn't trust, like, I didn't love Jesus prior to that. I didn't trust that's him. Very honest. He was, he was a like, unknown to me jesus was like this scary judgmental figure who hated me because of my sexuality and i just thought i was like oh my gosh like the only way he will ever love me is if i change so there was this like thought of like i have to change first before i'll be accepted by christ um and that was really hard because i just couldn't there was no part of me that could change it. I, I, like, I didn't have the power over myself to do that. Mm -hmm. um, so for my listeners who are identifying with you, uh, what would you say was the most bold decision you made? The most bold decision I made was realizing that I had no more options. I had tried too many things, had like, you know, had pursued all these things to help with my depression and anxiety, like medication and counseling. And it was a Band-Aid fix. And it really was not, I mean, they were helpful, sure, but they were not like treating the underlying cause or um, contributing factors. 
And really, I just felt so lonely. And I was like, and I was really trying to fight for this. Like, I, there was, I think kind of looking back, I'm like, I was, I think, subconsciously fighting to keep my faith. Um, That's good. Yeah. And I don't know how to like really describe it, but there was like an incredible stubborn unwillingness to just like drop Jesus. I was like, <laughs> and I don't know how to describe that. So I remember. Say that again. <laughs> what? Wait, say what you just said. There was an unwillingness to drop him. Yeah. Cause I mean, I, I mean, truly that's like, <laughs> that's, that's just what so funny. do. They, they come to this point, this road where they're like, like I have this experience, I have this sexuality that's here. It's a part of me, um, and the gospel, like the word of the like God, says that there's an incompatibility here, and it almost presents a false choice. Um, oh, and so, good. I had to. I remember I was in my room and I was like, I was like, Lord, I see. He revealed to me my fallenness, and not just with my sexuality, but with all of my personhood right right that's said, not that's so much more to you than just that right right of course it's just one aspect yeah. and so he goes and he showed it to me and I was like I can't do anything about it and I honestly don't trust you but like you're my only option left so I guess I'm trusting you and I'm like and I was like I need help <laughs> and I was, it was just it was like I was just like horrible like nasty crying like the one yeah. you don't want anyone to see you doing yeah. and I was just like and I like had grown up with this distorted view of Jesus and it was honestly really scary I was like I was like I'm asking for help from someone I don't like super know really well um but I was desperate and I think that that desperation was really what I think drove me to Jesus and that was the best Hmm. like the best decision of my life um and it has cost me um it's been really hard but like the spirit I think just affirms that decision in me when I think about it like over and over again I don't think I would ever want to have made a different decision um so I I definitely affirm the fact that there is a hardness to wrestling with sexuality um and with faith because I think that we have made so much of it to be a a false dilemma of you have to choose one or the other when I came to Christ, I didn't know what he was going to do with my sexuality. I didn't know what the outcome was going to be. I didn't know if he would touch it, if he would leave it alone, if he would change it. Um, and I can't really describe it, but he has subverted all those expectations. And I feel like I'm living a fuller life than when, you know, before I came to Jesus. As you said, it's just a small part. And I think a part of coming to Jesus was he showed me what a small part of it was. And he's like, you have so many more things you can experience in this life with me. Which actually brings me to something I want you to touch on Connor. And that's our culture's obsession with identity. Mm -hmm. So you had made this beautiful comment to me earlier on our former conversation, but what does identity mean to you? Yeah, um, I do think I would agree that culture is obsessed with identity. I think that stems from a very individualistic, autonomous self kind of perspective and worldview that I think all Americans share. I don't think that is like unique to any one aspect or political tribe. I think everyone in America has kind of fallen under the spell of like, you are a unique, autonomous individual self and no one is like you. Um, I think 
<laughs> we, we have lost, I think, a communal identity um, mm -hmm. in that sense. So when you have that autonomous self, you are basically your own meaning maker. You have to decide why you're here on this world. You have to decide what you're going to do. You have to decide like what meaning you have. And I think that is such a huge burden to people because it basically like forces them to come up with the whole reason they exist. And so I think um, like when you don't have a biblical worldview, when you do not accept the truth of scripture and the gospel, you aren't left with a foundation of what is the purpose of life. I think our identity obsession, I think stems a little bit from that where people don't know what the purpose of life is. Um, so they try to internalize it. And so I do think that we take, we're a very like physical, mm -hmm. um, science-y culture. You know, we take what we see at face value. Um, we, we don't really have a whole lot of like spiritual or like other uh, worldliness to our like thinking anymore, I guess I would say. So we basically see like, what do we, you know, what, what do our senses tell us? And that's truth. So I think when we have identity obsession, we look at what do we experience? What do we see? What do we, you know, what are we, what are, what like desires or feelings do I have inside? And if you kind of think about it, those are all the categories that we have for identity, sexuality, race. Um, are you able-bodied or disabled? Mm -hmm. What is your ethnicity? What are, um, you know, what are all these things? And those are all just very like corporeal, physical things. And we basically say, oh, I feel this thing or I am this thing. And we make it into our identity. And not all of that is bad. Like there is truth into the fact that people do experience these things. But I think what we end up doing is we tend to reduce our personhood to just these things. Mm -hmm. um, I tend to think of it like uh, people who are on Twitter have a tendency, it's like a thing where you put kind of all your uh, identity markers or tags in your Twitter, Twitter bio. bio. Yeah. So right. an example would be um, like, uh, someone saying like bi, disabled, Jewish, person of color, my preferred pronouns are like she, her. So like that would be like in a, that's just an example that would okay. be like a Twitter bio. And I think what that communicates is this is the most central parts of myself. Um, and I think that can be problematic because it's super reductionistic. You're essentially saying these are the only most important parts of myself. Um, what, what we communicate um, what we put at the forefront is what we're saying is most important. And I think that those are just such small parts of ourselves that we end up making small aspects of who we are as humans into um, such a big, big thing. And I guess I kind of think it, think of it in terms of like, you know, idolatry a little bit from the Old Testament. You had like these groups that would have their little metal or gold or wood statues and like objectively to us in the 21st century they would be super unimpressive but to the people back then they would be like like everything like these are our gods and i think that's the whole point is that these gods these things that are 
really unimpressive and small and they have like some value to them, yeah. but you're blowing them up to be this like absolute ginormous thing and they can never deliver for you. Right. And they're they dead. <laughs> yeah. They'll, so what, what do you think, what part of our identity do we take to heaven with us? Yeah. So the way I, I think of it is that I think that there are legitimate aspects of identity that are important and we shouldn't, um, diminish those. Um, I think there are, however, I, I tend to think of it in this way, like what aspects of identity are coming from a place of sin? Um, in what ways are we making like sinful uh, aspects of our human nature a part of our desire? I think those are wrong identity markers. Um, the way I, I kind of, I think I'd phrase it to you is what will still be present at the resurrection? Yeah, that's, that's good. Um, so like, like we're told we'll have new functional non-fallen bodies. Mm -hmm. And we're also told that, you know, people will not be married nor be given in marriage. So there is no like functional human sexuality in the resurrection. There is no broken bodies in the resurrection. Mm -hmm. There is no sexual orientation in the resurrection those are gone those are so i think the fact that those are gone means well why should christians especially and i think that's who i'm kind of referring to why should we be adopting those aspects of ourselves? now i think that there will be certain aspects of identity that will be present um in the resurrection so i think that people will keep you know their skin color their yeah. race their, their ethnicity um they will remember their life experiences here on earth. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think those are legitimate identity markers. I think I would add though that like when you get to heaven, we think of it as the end, but it's actually the beginning. Mm -hmm. So you'll be adding so much more to your personhood once you are given your new body. And so I think that as important as those things are, um, I think those run a smaller risk, but still a risk of being like made too much of. That's good. I think that's great, Connor. You say it so well. You say it really well. So la a couple, two more questions before we have to go here, but um, any chance you had, were able to read about my main character and my story at all? Yeah, yeah, I, so, I uh, finished it. <laughs> so, you what? I, I mean, I read almost all of it. Oh my so goodness. Yeah. Well, he had to make, he was invited to make three decisions, right? Mm -hmm. For his faith journey, to turn toward God. Uh, I used the second decision calling it, giving God permission to work in his life, or the third to discern between the voices. So, mm -hmm. Which decision do you think is most important in your story? If you could articulate that or maybe talk about his story, it doesn't matter, but which decision yeah. strikes you um, of importance? I, I guess in my story, the first two questions I think were most important. Okay. Um, I think that those are ones that uh, kind of forced me like, to trust Jesus. Um, uh, I do think that there's an aspect of, you know, you kind of have to like, you know, just take the leap of faith, I guess, and just like trust that he says who he says, or, or he says who he says he is, you know, mm -hmm. like 
all right, you say that you are a loving, kind, and merciful God, and you are asking me to trust you on that. And I'm like, not really sure, but I'm like, I'm going to do it. Um, and it was like this, I feel like this moment of like, there is no going back. Like once I made that decision, it was permanent. So I, I guess I think that's what lent so much gravity to the situation is that I was like, I feel like this decision I'm making is very permanent. Um, so I do think that the letting, I think the first question, I think, oh, I, this is so hard. I, I, I see all of those, all three of those questions as being um, both moments and processes. Hmm. I think it was a process up to, you know, that day in February, months in the making of getting to the place where I felt like I could make that decision. Um, learning to trust and like let God work in my life has also been a process. There are some things that like looking back, I was super stubborn on. I just would not let go. Um, <laughs> and I think that that's such a big part of faith is that it's a, a process of the Lord continuously like, like revealing his goodness and his love to us. Um, but also not letting us kind of stay stagnant and where we are, like he continually trans transforms us. I have, I feel like, been reflecting a lot on that last question, though. Okay. With the question, which one? The discerning between the voices. Okay, excellent. I think that that is something that I find very difficult. Um, I think one of the most powerful tools of the enemy is to get you to believe a lie that yeah. he has planted in you. And I think from my growing up experience, I had believed a lot of lies about who God was, about who Jesus was, about what he wanted from me. And those are, I think, strongholds that take time to be overcome. Um, and I think a part of the faith journey of a Christian, even after they learn to trust Jesus, is learning to trust what he says about us. Um, there are days where I'm like, I just do not feel like my actions are reflecting the Holy Spirit and the evil one uses that as an opportunity to cast doubt in me. Um, am I really a Christian? Am I really one of God's beloved? Am I, have I really been made new or am I just like, right. Making uh, this up. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I've been reflecting on those. I think those are interesting questions that I think maybe people come to in a different order um, mm -hmm. sometimes. Um, but I do think there's definite truth in all of those that mm -hmm. every child of God, every Christian, every believer um, has to confront eventually. Yeah, that's good. I love the fact that you're saying that it's they're 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 sometimes in the moment and then other times they're processes, which I would say the whole time we're on the side of eternity. That's what it's going to be. And when, as you said too, which I agree, in heaven we're going to be growing so much more mm -hmm. in our love. So, what is your end with telling us some of your favorite scriptures, books, uh, and what you're hoping for? Yeah, um, I think. Uh, I'm a big fan of C.S. Lewis's work, especially mm -hmm. some of his more like allegorical work. Um, I really love uh, the screw tape letters. It's, it could be a little. <laughs> yeah, I know. I love them too. I do love them. 
but uh, I really love, I think, the way in which he presents some really biblical aspects. Um, I'm also a big Dallas Willard fan. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been so deep, so hard to read, but I think very rewarding. Um, in terms of some scriptures, uh, I'm a big fan of First uh, John as a book. <laughs> yeah. And then I really like, uh, I believe it's Ephesians 3. Let me look it up really quick. Ephesians. It's the, uh, the verse where Paul is like praying for the, the church and saying like, um, oh yeah, Ephesians 3, 14 through uh, 21, where he just says like, he's praying that um, the, the Ephesians he's writing to will learn um, truly like the power of God and that through trusting Christ, like his love will grow deep into their hearts and then they'll truly understand the love of God. And I just really love that, that, that piece of scripture. That's a good. I think there is an aspect of, we don't really fully understand the love of Jesus. And I think the more we understand of it, the more we are transformed into his likeness. And the more we can receive it too, because sometimes our minds can't even comprehend it. Mm-hmm. That's good. Connor, you've said so many good nuggets of truth today that we could spend an hour on each one, but unfortunately we don't have time. But would you let me pray for you before I let you go? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Father God, we're so thankful for the way you pursue us and the way you've pursued Connor, but with such gentleness. Lord, I love that about you. And I just pray and ask that as he goes about his day today, Uh, the Lord Jesus, that you would be so close to him even more uh, with your compassion and that he would exude that compassion to others. Lord, thank you for his life. Thank you for his words, for the way that he can articulate what it is to grow in you. And so, Lord, now we just pray your blessing and anointing, your delight and your belovedness over Connor. Amen. 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 So let me just thank you so much for uh, this opportunity. I very much appreciate it. Oh, it's been a joy having you. And I can't wait to uh, hear uh, how much you bless the listeners today, Connor.